takes on the giant. Is there any other narrative in the Bible that has captivated both Christians and non-Christians alike? I think a large part of the reason for its popularity is that everybody seems to love a good underdog story. So, you, you know, what comes to your mind when you think of underdog story? For me, I'm such a sporty kind of person that I immediately think of sport. We think of Northern Ireland beating Spain, 1982 World Cup. I think more recently Darren Clark winning the British Open 2011. These underdog stories of the little ones rising up and defeating the big ones. So many great underdog stories throughout history. But surely we'd want to say that young David, the shepherd boy, defeating Goliath, the giant, is the greatest of them all. Well, let me tell you, folks, actually, it's not. It's not at all. Why? Because it's not an underdog story to begin with. To categorize it as such is to completely miss the entire point. What were David's words of defiance to Goliath in verse 45 of our reading? He said, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. You know, and you can imagine David standing there with this little bag of stones. But what does he say? He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord. Folks, Folks, let's not miss this right at the outset. This cannot be an underdog story because David has the Lord of heaven and earth on his side. So Goliath is not just fighting this young boy with no military experience whatsoever. Rather, unknowingly, he stands against the God of all creation. And when you do that, there's only ever one winner. You see, God is the champion of this story. It's not David. I've, I've heard talks given on this passage before. I've heard entire sermons being preached, and the point seems to rise up that, you know, we can all overcome the giants in our lives because God can help us to do so. And the message tends to get boiled down to, we too can be champions, just like David the hero. But that is just not the point of this at all. This story has one central point, and that is that God is powerful beyond measure. None can stand before this God and his plans. And amazingly, David even states this to Goliath before he defeats him. So you can imagine, you know, if you're a pictorial kind of person, picture the scene, standing in the shadow of this giant, this warrior, this man that everybody else is afraid of, terrified of. And David, little David, he declares this in verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and I'll cut off your head and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. Is David the hero? Is David's name the one that's to be sung and glorified at the end of this fight? No, God is the hero. The Lord is the one who delivers Goliath into David's hands. And at the end of the battle, everyone will know 
not that David is the true God, but that the Lord is the God of Israel and he's the God of all. David's honor is not at stake, only the Lord's. The fact that God uses little David to defeat this giant of a man serves to emphasize God's power all the more. Folks, it doesn't matter your size. It just doesn't. God can use each and every one of us to do incredible things in service of him because as Paul would later ask in Romans 8, 31, rhetorical question, if God is for us, who can be against us? The fact that David doesn't even have armor when he fights this guy. He doesn't even have weaponry to match Goliath. The fact that he uses a single stone, not even, you know, all five or one, two, three, four, and then five. It's one single stone to defeat this giant. It all serves to illustrate one thing, the tremendous power of God. No enemy can stand before the Lord. Goliath was so sure of himself too, wasn't he? We're told in verse 16, if you look back a bit from our reading, that Goliath, this is incredible, Goliath came forward every single day for 40 days. And that, you know, this went on for a month and a half, basically, and he did it twice a day, morning and evening. And so what you've got a picture here is the army of Israel on one side of kind of a big empty space and then the army of the Philistines on the other. And he, Goliath, would leave the safety, security of his own camp and he would go right up to the Israeli line and he would mock them. He would taunt them. Now it seems to be the case that often a battle was fought between the, the two best fighters, one from each side. So one would come out from one side, one would come from the other side, and whoever won from that little mini battle would just, that would be the winner. And the rest would go home so that you weren't end up with thousands of dead bodies lying around the place. But no one would come out from the Israel army. Goliath, he must have been so intimidating. And there's incredible detail. If you go right back to verses 4 to 7 uh, in 1 Samuel here, he, he's a giant of a man. So approximately nine feet tall. You know, nine feet tall. You think about the tallest people you know. I, I have a friend who's six foot seven. I remember my teacher in school in Carrick Grammar was six, six foot 11. And I was like year eight, you know, staring up at this giant of a man. 6'11 is huge, but this guy is nine feet tall. You think of those great heavyweight boxing champions, the Tyson Furies. He's six foot nine. I was looking this up earlier. Goliath is two feet over two feet taller. We also read excessive detail about his armor. He had the best equipment, the heaviest armor possible to protect him because he was strong enough to carry it without much effort. And he was so confident in his equipment. He was so confident in his own strength, in his own skill. You know, he had been a warrior since he was a boy. 
And amazingly then in verse 9, if you look at that verse, he makes this promise that if one Israelite could defeat him, the entire Philistine army would become their slaves. There's such an arrogance here, isn't there? There was no part of Goliath that thought he could lose to anybody. That's how impossible the struggle would be for anyone who dared challenge him. But the truth is he had no idea who who he was about to fight against. None. So we find out in verses 12 to 19, if you look at this little section, that one of David's roles as the youngest son of Jesse was to actually go and bring food and supplies to his uh, eldest brothers who were fighting in the army. I think it was three eldest brothers. And he arrives then, he, he does this, he fulfills his father's wish. He arrives on the scene to find out that the Israelites have been standing still for over a month. And it's all because of one, one man, Goliath. And we learn quickly, verse 23, that David can actually hear He hears Goliath's boasts and brags. So he's, you know, you can picture it again. He's close enough to the front to hear this man yelling and taunting the whole Israelite army. Now, I don't know what any of you would do in this situation, but I doubt that many of us would be you know, filled with courage and the adrenaline rushes in that we'd want to be pushing ourselves to the fore here. Probably the more likely scenario is that we would, you know, car aware in terror. You'd be filled with anxiety or fear. But what's David's reaction? Is he filled with dread or anxiety? No. In fact, he's filled with this righteous anger. And it's because it seems that David is the only one present who understands the reality of the situation. He's the only one that seems to recognize that God is on the side of Israel. So in verse 26, David boldly asks, who is this Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That is a tremendous question, and it's a tremendous display of faith, is it not, on David's side? But here's the problem, folks. Really quickly, we know this. David is only young. He's got no experience in battle or war, so his words just, they they immediately fall on deaf ears. You know, the men around him who hear this, they put it down to, I guess, youthful naivety, a bit of exuberance there. And actually, we see in verse 28, David's own brother, Eliab, he burns with anger against David because of this. So everyone essentially thinks he's a fool, and they really just tell him, they're clear off, go home, get out of here. You, you don't know what you're talking about. But David pays no attention. He's so convicted. Such was his trust in the Lord that he's compelled to stay. And remarkably then, he puts himself forward. He puts himself forward to fight Goliath. Now, this is, this is interesting because isn't it ironic that Saul was the one to send David? Saul is the one who sends David with this blessing. 
what a moment this is. You know, this is Saul and David now standing side by side here. The king who was chosen by the people and then the king who was chosen by the Lord. And this story of all the stories illustrates perfectly the difference between these two men. Because remember, what was it about Saul that the people liked? Do you remember the one detail? I think it was back in chapter 10, that he was a head taller than everybody else. You know, he looked like a king because he was so tall, so strong looking. So we know already from this story, he was about seven feet tall himself. Huge, huge man. Someone who could maybe consider taking on Goliath but he wouldn't dare. In contrast to that, then, we have David, the young shepherd boy, whose only training was in the fields, where he had to fight off wild animals to protect his sheep. But what great training that would be, because he was used to fighting these wild beasts. So the irony, of course, is that Saul the chosen one by the people, he cowers away in terror. But David, who's chosen by the Lord, he steps forward with courage. But here's the key, folks. It's not courage in himself, is it? It's certainly not courage in his equipment because he, could, he wasn't strong enough to hold it, so he had to abandon that. No, this is not an underdog story about a man who musters up courage and believes in himself against all odds. His courage came exclusively from the fact that the Lord was on his side. This is a man, well, his heart beats after the Lord's, doesn't it? This story is incredible because it makes God look glorious. He is unrivaled in power. He is unparalleled in majesty. His sovereignty cannot and must not be questioned. So often in the Bible, the Lord's chosen one looks defeated. The forecast looks bleak. But then out of nowhere, the Lord brings about his good purposes. He brings glory to his name. So whether that be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are thrown into the fiery furnace and all looks like death, or Daniel in the lion's den, or Elijah on top of the mountain with all the priests gathered around, or Jonah in the belly of the fish, or Paul in the shipwrecked waters, Time after time, the Lord delivers his people against the odds. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? Who? And there's one more example of this, isn't there? The most famous of them all, the most significant of them all. As Jesus stood trial, Pilate asked him questions. And what did Jesus do? Well, to fulfill the prophecy, he kept silent. He didn't speak. And do you remember this moment, this incredible moment when Pilate looks at Jesus and essentially says, don't you see that I have the power to release you? 
I have power over your life. Well, how mistaken can a person be? Because the truth that we know is that Pilate had no power at all over Jesus's life. Why is that? It's because God had written this moment. He had written this moment from even before the creation of the world. And there was nothing that Pilate could say or do at all that would stop Jesus going to the cross. Folks, no one, not even us, can stand against the Lord's will. We may fight all we like. We may even come with sword, spear, or javelin in hand. But the only thing that matters is whether or not we come in the name of the Lord. Folks, God's plans are absolutely set, solid as a rock. He already has his plans for all of us and for all of his creation. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, even as his disciples ran away in fear and assumed that all was lost, even as his closest friends betrayed him, denied even knowing him, even as he breathed his last and as his lifeless body was taken down from this cross and placed into a tomb for days, it still wasn't over because God had a plan. On the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death. He created a way for all of us to be reconciled with God our Father. He died for our sin, and we know he did it willingly. He did it lovingly. He died despite our sin. He died, in fact, because of our sin. That's how much we are loved and valued by our Lord. And folks, it was all part of God's salvation plan that had been written before Adam and Eve, before the beginning of the world. That's why the apostle Peter says the most incredible thing in Acts chapter, uh, well, he says it in Acts chapter two and chapter four again. He says, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, Jerusalem, to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. And here's what he says. They did, Lord, what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Folks, David walked out to meet Goliath in the name of the Lord. He trusted in God's plan. He trusted in God's promises. He believed that being on God's team meant losing was just not possible. And this is precisely what the Lord is asking all of us to believe. Do we trust in God's plans for our lives, for our whole world, do we trust in God's promises that we find in his word? And do we see that, well, it's in Jesus alone that we find salvation? Do we see that even though we will face death in this lifetime, 
we don't have to lose, but in fact, we can gain that which we treasure most of all, and that's eternity with Christ, and it all comes through faith in him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this stark and clear reminder of your sovereignty. Lord, you are this great, big, strong, mighty God. And Lord, yet there are times in our lives when we just feel so shaken. We confess that, Father. We see the terror, the war around us. We know in our own lives there is difficulty, there is pain, there is uncertainty. We feel pushed and pulled this way and that. We feel the rolling waves of culture around us. We feel the persecution perhaps drawing near us. And we begin to doubt. We question. Lord, forgive us. Help us always to carry that, that picture from Isaiah 6 of the throne room where all is well, where you reign glorious. Lord, may we always see that you are the God of heaven and the God of earth. Father, we thank you that you've known us from before our lives even began. We thank you that you've been shaping us even from conception, in fact, before. And Lord, we thank you that your hand is upon our lives. Help us to trust in your plans. Help us to remember the promises that actually you're working for our good in all things. Father, we thank you most of all for this calling you've placed in our lives, a calling to know Christ, to recognize him as our savior. We praise you, Jesus, as the one who is the king of all kings, the one who willingly went to the cross and it was all because of our sin. In fact, it was because you loved us so. So Lord, we're sorry for our part. But Father, help us to stride out from here with confidence, not confidence in ourselves, not in our own strength, not in our own ability, just like Goliath did. Rather, to stride out like David, with confidence in you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.